anywhere you can take an MP3. If you like what you hear and want to support my work, go to patreon.com slash Sadler. I hope you enjoy this lecture. Philip K. Dick begins his essay, The Android and the Human, with this wonderful sentence, It is the tendency of the so-called primitive mind to animate its environment. Modern depth psychology has requested us for years to withdraw these anthropomorphic projections from what is actually inanimate reality, to interject, that is to bring back into our own heads, the living quality which we in ignorance cast out onto the inert things, surrounding us. And so we've got a contrast set up here between different kinds of mentalities, different viewpoints on the human being and the environment and the things of their environment. Do we look at the environment in a way that analogizes the things in it? You know, for example, machines or lower animals as if they are human, they're animate in the same way that we are having not just life, but soul? Or do we regard that as dead, inert, although movable, programmable matter that can be configured in different ways. And we are somehow different from that. Or a third possibility, do we say everything is basically mechanism. And you're going to notice that as you read this essay, he talks about Benedict Spinoza, a great early modern philosopher, among other things. He's also a lens crafter. And Spinoza is known for having not just a pantheistic conception of the universe and of substance, but also for being devoted to looking at things in a mechanistic way, including the human human passions, including our intellect. And Spinoza is, in certain respects, reflective of two of his great predecessors to whom he's indebted, Rene Descartes and Thomas Hobbes, who are at odds with each other on a number of different things, but especially on the difference between the human and the mechanism. For Thomas Hobbes, if you ever read Leviathan, everything is mechanistic, everything is matter, including ourselves and our very own minds. So we are, he's got this kind of archaic view. The nerves are like little cords that pull things back and forth. And we have gears and levers and things like that going on in our brain. Descartes, on the other hand, looks at animals as being essentially mechanisms, our body as a very complex mechanism, so far in agreement with Hobbes, but says that we have a mind or soul that is radically distinct a different kind of order, a different type of substance than the body. It's more closely connected to than a captain in his ship but it's somehow distinct. And explaining how these get together, Descartes has this whole theory about the pineal gland that we don't need to go into here. So this idea of distinctions between human persons and animals and machines is something that has been with us for a very long time. And as Dick says, to repeat the sentence, it is the tendency of the so-called, notice he's saying so-called here, primitive mind, to animate its environment. People view this as being childish, right? 
introjecting the life, the anima into ourselves, casting out or no longer casting out this onto the inner thing surrounding us is said to be the mark of true maturity in the individual and the authentic mark of civilization in contrast to mere social culture as one might find in a tribe. And then he says, a native of Africa is said to view his surroundings as pulsing with a purpose, a life, which is actually within himself. Once these childish projections are withdrawn, he sees that the world is dead and that life resides solely within himself or other human beings, right? And when he reaches this sophisticated point, he's said to be either mature or sane or scientific. So we've got this interesting contrast here. On the one hand, the childish, the primitive, the atavistic mind over here, right? That or could be the mind of our playing around as well. On the other hand, the mature scientific attitude, which realizes that these are all just pipe dreams, fantasies, perhaps insanity, the real mature human human beings, the well-developed ones, have science, and that tells them about the universe, the world, and we can realize that our technology is just that, technology, right? There's a danger here, as he points out in his very first paragraph. One wonders, has he not also, in this process, reified, that is, made into a thing, other people? Stones and rocks and trees may now be inanimate for him, but what about his friends? Has he not made them into stones too? This is indeed a concern, a worry, a danger. And it's a greater danger than just for the individual person, as we're going to see, because it has to do with culture. And it has to do with the determinative entities and organizations within it. Then Dick goes on and he says, there's a new trend. And he says, the solution to this psychological problem is of less importance than one might think because in the last decade, and he's writing this in the early 1970s, we have seen a trend not anticipated by our earnest psychologists or by anyone else, which dwarfs that issue. What is this problem? Our environment. And I mean our man-made world. World of what? World of machines, artificial constructs, computers, electronic systems, interlocking homeostatic components. All this is, in fact, beginning more and more to possess what the earnest psychologists fear the primitive sees in his environment, animation. Now, let's pause on this word for a moment because it's a very pregnant one. It comes from anima or animus, right? There are two Latin terms, one of which is typically used to mean mind and involves affectivity and cognition. The other means soul. And for the ancients, the soul is the principle of life. So things are animate when they have some kind of soul, when they are, to use some phrases, self-moved movers, although certainly able to be moved by other things as well. So we are now, and this he's writing this generations before the present, beginning to see in our environment animation. In a very real sense, he says, our environment is becoming alive, or at least quasi-alive. Quasi, not entirely, kind of a facsimile of it. And this is presenting us with a lot of problems. And he says, 
it's becoming alive in ways specifically and fundamentally analogous to ourselves. And then he brings up cybernetics and Norbert Wiener, seeing valid comparisons between the behaviors of machines and humans. The idea being that if we study machines, we will actually have valuable insights into the nature of our own behavior by studying what goes wrong with a machine. For example, when two mutually exclusive tropisms function simultaneously in one of Gray Walter's synthetic turtles, producing fascinatingly intricate behavior in the befuddled turtles, we learn perhaps a new, more fruitful insight into what humans called neurotic behavior. So the idea is we study machines and we get to learn more about how our own minds and perhaps our minds and bodies work together. But Dick suggests, this is one of the very important aspects of this, maybe we need to turn the analogy the other way. He says, suppose a study of ourselves, of our own nature, enables us to gain insight into the now extraordinarily complex functioning and malfunctioning of mechanical and electronic constructs. In other words, and this is what I wish to stress in what I'm saying here, it is now possible we can learn about the artificial environment around us, how it behaves, why, what it is up to, by, and notice this key term here that's coming up over and over again, analogizing from what we know about ourselves. Analogy, analogizing. That means that these things are not exactly the same. They're not within the same classification. They're not to be reduced to each other. There is a dissimilarity, insimilarity between them, but there's enough similarity. There's there's enough points of connection that we can look at ourselves and learn about these machines that are becoming more and more complex or networks of these machines. A little bit later, he's going to say, and I think this is a very important statement, our flight must not only be to the stars, but into the nature of our own beings because it is not merely where we go to Alpha Centaurus or to Betelgeuse, but what we are as we make our pilgrimages there. Our natures will be going there too. Ad astra, that is to the stars, but per hominem, as human being. We must never lose sight of that. It would, after all, be rather dismaying if the first two-legged entity to emerge on the surface of Mars from a Terran spaceship were to declare, thanks be to God for letting me, letting me click, letting click, this is a recording, and then catch fire and explode as a couple wires got crossed somewhere in its plastic chest, right? So we may have all sorts of things in front of us. And we can think about our world that we live in today, which is so much more complexly interfaced and interlaced with technology than that even Dick imagined. We still have to explore our human nature. And that allows us to analogize from what we know about ourselves to make sense out of the machines. And he says, machines are becoming more human, so to speak, at least in the sense that cybernetics indicated some meaningful comparison exists between human and mechanical behavior, but is it not ourselves that we know first and foremost? Rather than learning about ourselves by studying our constructs, perhaps we should make the attempt to comprehend what our constructs are up to by looking into what we ourselves are up to. And the analysis that he's going to provide here is attempting to do this. I think that you could say that a lot of Dick's fiction is also similarly trying to do that as well. He goes on and he says, perhaps what we're seeing is a gradual merging of the general nature of human activity and function into the activity and function of what we humans have built and surrounded ourselves with. And he says, a hundred years ago, such a thought would have been absurd. 
rather than merely anthropomorphic. Note the difference between those. Absurd means it, it's not unthinkable because obviously you can think absurd things, but they don't, they don't make sense. You can't bring them together. Now we can say that that's just anthropomorphic. It's not absurd. It could make sense, but it's wrong, right? And he says, what could a man living in 1750 have learned about himself by observing the behavior of a donkey steam engine? And, you know, we could say, uh, you know, quite a bit. We talked about Descartes and Hobbes a little bit earlier. So maybe Dick is being a little bit bullish on that. And then he goes on and he says, I have in some of my stories and novels written about androids or robots or simulacra. The name doesn't matter. What is meant is artificial constructs masquerading as human, usually with some sinister purpose in mind. And then he said, I suppose I took it for granted if such a construct, a robot, for example, had a benign or anyhow decent purpose in mind, it wouldn't have to disguise itself. Now, interestingly, in a lot of these stories, humans have disguised the android as a human, haven't they? And then he goes on and he says, this seems obsolete to me. The constructs do not mimic humans, right? They're not imitating. They're not masquerading. They are in many deep ways actually human already. They're not trying to fool us for a purpose of any sort. They merely follow lines we follow in order that they too may overcome such common problems as the breakdown of vital parts, loss of power source, attack by such foes as storms, short circuits. And he goes on and then he says, we must reverse the analogizing of cybernetics, try to reason from our own mentation and behavior to those of machines. So this suggests that maybe they are very similar to us, they, that they could become human. Dick is actually not saying, and then he's going to give with one hand and take back with the other, and we'll probably meet somewhere in between, because he says, to assign purpose or motive to them would be to enter the realm of paranoia. What machines do may resemble what we do, but they don't have intent in the sense that we have. Now, notice that he's not saying they don't have intent. He's saying they don't have intent in the sense that we have. They may have intent, but it's something kind of different. They have tropisms. They have purpose in the sense that we build them to accomplish certain ends and react to certain stimuli. And here he gives the example of a pistol. A pistol is built with the purpose of firing a metal slug that will damage, incapacitate, or kill somebody. That doesn't mean the pistol wants to do this. And then he brings up Spinoza saying that if a falling stone could reason, it would say, I want to fall at the rate of 32 feet per second. And then he goes on and says, free will for us, that is when we feel desire, when we are conscious of wanting to do what we do, may even be for us an illusion. He's not saying that it is an illusion, but depth psychology seems to say many of our drives originate from an unconscious that's beyond our control. We are driven as our insects, although the term instinct is not applicable for us. So this is interesting. We've got two sides, right? The machines becoming more and more sophisticated, more and more invested with human purposes and ideas becoming more like us. And on the other hand, we have us who can always be kind of like machines or insects. And we're, you know, understanding through modern humanities and science that perhaps our realm of, you know, conscious decision-making is a little bit narrower than we present it to ourselves, right? And then he talks about a thought, not too pleasing. Here's what he's suggesting. As the external world becomes more animate, we may find that we, the so-called humans, are becoming and may to a great extent always have been inanimate in the sense that we are led, directed by built-in tropisms, 
rather than leading. So we and our elaborately evolving computers may meet ourselves half, may meet each other halfway. And he frames it in terms of an antagonistic situation. Someday a human being named perhaps Fred White may shoot a robot named Pete something or other, which has come out of a General Electric's factory, and to his surprise, see it weep and bleed. And the dying robot may shoot back, and to its surprise, see a whiff of gray smoke arise from the electric pump that it supposes Mr. White's bleeding heart. It would be a great moment of truth for both of them. So this leads him to ask them, well, what is authentically human? The other thing that he talks about that is quite important with all these implications is this is not just an abstract conversation about the possibilities of artificial intelligence and human beings, because it is possible for human beings to be reduced to the android. And a lot of processes and organizations within modern culture are trying to do that to human beings. So it's important to resist androidization, the reduction to the ultimately inanimate, animated, but not animate. So this is where he begins this address, setting us a very interesting problem and a proposal. Let's look at ourselves if we want to understand what's going on with machines. Special thanks to all of my Patreon supporters for making this podcast possible. You can find me on Twitter at Philosopher70, on YouTube at the Gregory B. Sadler channel, and on Facebook on the Gregory B. Sadler page. Once again, to support my work, go to patreon.com Sadler. Above all, keep studying these great philosophical works.